I hope you guys are breathing for today's podcast. Today's guest is Brian McKenzie. He is a human performance expert, educator, author, and public speaker. He is an elite performance coach with two decades of experience innovating new protocols for training for Olympians, professional athletes, and the everyday people like us. I came across Brian when I picked up a copy of his book, Unbreakable Runner, which was written by him and TJ Murphy. And It really got me thinking about how I'm training, and I've kind of made some changes with regard to my training over the last year, Um, sort of willy-nilly, but this this sort of honed it in as an alternative. Now, it's not, you know, the only way to do things, but very interesting alternative way to look at endurance training. Um, He also is the founder of The Art of Breath, which is a division of Power Speed Endurance, and they have amazing programs that that incorporates not only endurance training, but your breath, your nutrition, everything into this whole idea of being a human performance elite, like to be the best you that you can be. So I hope you all enjoy this episode with Brian McKenzie and take a deep breath because you need it. You need those deep breaths through your nose and not your mouth. Fellow mouth breathers. (laughs) Enjoy the show. Welcome to the same 24 hours podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day. And it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Brian McKenzie. Hi, Brian. Hi, Meredith. How are you? I am good. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Really excited to talk to you. So I picked up your book, Unbreakable Runner, about a month ago, and I've been doing CrossFit for about a year, and I found myself just kind of nodding along, um, like, yes, this is it. This is amazing. And so I want to talk to you about it and and, and also (laughs) talk to you about, really, it's just about me. (laughs) I get it. Yeah. You're just using this platform in order to talk. Exactly. I get it. No, just I get kidding. it. But um, super great book. So thank you, first of all, for writing it. I, I, I guess it's been out a couple years, but, um, you know, I just found it. So let's let's start there and, and see where we go. So Unbreakable Runner, um, let's get a little background on you. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I have to thank a guy who I actually haven't had a conversation with in quite some time. His name is TJ Murphy. And he was the former senior editor of uh, Triathlete Magazine and a bunch of the publications sitting under competitor group. And he was somebody who had never, uh, who had done things one way. And he heard about this guy who was doing these radical things and he challenged it and we actually got into an altercation online about this <laughs> and online uh altercations don't you and yeah i used to <laughs> i'm just i'm like this is just the weirdest thing ever like it's just weird that we we socialize now on this you know or however we're whatever we're doing online anyway he he ended up coming and be in and, and coming to a seminar i was teaching in san diego and he 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 like he literally stumbled in because he was like crippled. Um, and he, I, I was like, Hey, so this is, a, this is what's going on. This is what's going on. And this is amidst me teaching a, a seminar and on my break. And he's like, what? And he just listened the whole time. And we ended up forging a friendship and he was like, we got to write another book. We got it because like this just changed the way he started looking at things. And, and, and we were able to open that up. And I think for me, it was the same story as well. I, I, did I, I had I was a short course sprinter um, and mostly I was a I, I grew up as uh, I was a skate punk I was a surfer um, I grew up in Southern California I had a background in swimming and playing water polo I was very speed oriented I was I I, I, I swam the fifty and the hundred. Um, and, and that was all I did. And, um, I got roped into doing a triathlon in like 2001 and I ended up doing one and getting crushed on the bike and the, and the run. And I barely trained, barely did the swim. I I barely trained for the swim and I literally came in the top 10 Mm -hmm. and 
that's just because I've got a background in it, right? Well, it's really easy for people to look at that and go, well, yeah, you had a background in that. And it's like, well, yeah, I did. I established a base and I, I started from a foundation. And I, that, that, that thought process has really kind of is what altered everything in the landscape of everything because I had done some cycling, but I didn't do as terrible as I did on the run. And I did some running, but I wasn't, I hadn't been a runner. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at all these things and, you know, I, I worked with a number of people in my career who infl- who had a plenty of influence on what I did, but uh, we inevitably conceived the idea of and took it back to looking at things like, well, what is a world-class marathon or where does he start or she start? And if you look at world-class, even Iron Manners, they do not start off Iron Manning. They do not start off marathoning, nor do they come close to the mileage that they're actually putting in for those things. And where they start is world-class 3000 meter or 1500 meter runners or sprint course (laughs) triathletes that are very, very fast. And there's a big gap that happens as we see things as gen it's kind of the general population. We see these things like Ironman as being great things and don't think that I didn't go through this process because I did, I did one triathlon. I literally went and signed up for a half Ironman than after a sprint distance, after getting my butt kicked at a sprint, <laughs> sprint distance, right. I signed up for a, for a half marathon Ironman so that I could actually go know that I could go and do a full Ironman and which I did a full Ironman in 2004. So first triathlon ended up being in 2002, early 2002. And then it like literally I was doing a full Ironman by 2004 and I did one and I was just like, I I was wrecked. I was literally just destroyed and, um, I didn't understand it. And I I didn't feel like that was that, that should have been the case. And so we kind of reworked things, introduced, uh, some strength and conditioning. Um, you know, you, you said you have a power, did you you have a power lifting or weightlifting? Olympic lifting. So, okay. So Olympic lifting. Yep. Good. Well, so I had a bit of a power lifting background and I, like my dad, we, we had, I had a garage gym in 1991 cause my dad was doing some power lifting and, and we just, this is where he trained and whatever. And I, I, I was following suit back when I was in high school and, and you know, I was just, we were doing a lot of strength training. Anyway, we took it back and started doing some strength training, but we figured out pretty quickly that you couldn't do a lot of strength training. If you were going to run bike and swim long, you're just too beat up. You were too sore. So we started manipulating things and playing with things. And that inevitably evolved into what we first launched was CrossFit Endurance. Um, And and now we, you know, we've morphed that or evolved that with with what is Power Speed Endurance, which was my first book. Um, And and that is where we utilize the uh, some of the principles of CrossFit. Um, in the variance and the strength and conditioning aspect aspect of this, the GPP, um, you know, that is a very important component. I felt that, well, I, we, we saw just tremendous results as, as by adding that to the conditioning aspect of things. Mm-hmm. And that allowed for people, especially in triathlon, who were terrible at specific sports to actually make little jumps quicker than they actually normally were because it's a, you know, you're transitioning into something else else and so when we start to challenge ourselves metabolically in other things and other realms or positions or movements that we're not very good at when we tend to get better at those things other things tend to open up and that's kind of the core of the crux of you know of what is it the heart of crossfit and what crossfit really is um which today most people don't truly understand what CrossFit actually is. Right. I definitely <clears throat> want to want to touch on that before we go forward. So, because I, yeah. I can just hear like the people, you know, wanting to press off because there is like, oh, yeah. so many misconceptions of CrossFit. I mean, even still, people say to me, "Well, are you just going to get hurt?" And I mean, even with my lifting background, you know, mm. it's it's crazy to me. So let's let's talk about the misconceptions of CrossFit. Or maybe yeah, well, what it is. Well, no. si- simply put, it's not the CrossFit Games. <laughs> no, and, I do not and, look like that. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't matter what you look like. It's it's not the CrossFit Games. Yeah. 
for that is not CrossFit. That is the sport of CrossFit. That is a highly, and, and you need, you've got to be able to differentiate that. You can't sit there and group that in the same thing. So what CrossFit actually is, is arguably the great, greatest movement diagnostic tool that we've ever seen. You show me if you can't squat with a bar over your head, great. We're going to drop that bar to the front of your, to a front rack position. And can you squat it there? And can you show me you can squat it well? If you can't, great. We're going to throw it on your back. We'll make it a little easier. Oh, you can't do that either. Look, we're going to take the bar off. That's called scalability. And that's how CrossFit actually works, right? You take something in reverse. If you can't do the highly technical or highly skilled some, uh, or movement and, and you back it down. And it's also not met, Metcons five days a week. Right. CrossFit actually is, you know, we used to talk about this in our original seminar that going into the gym and deadlifting seven sets of one is CrossFit. You go home after that. And if you can't go home after deadlifting seven sets of one, you don't understand what seven sets of one means. <laughs> That's true. Okay. And so the, on the flip side of that, the next day shows a 5K run. Right. <laughs> so, right. And these are just examples of what we used to talk about with people. And then you get the crowd that goes, yay, on the 5K run. They won't deadlift, right? But right. then you get the crowd who just wants to deadlift heavy, who doesn't want to run. Right. And so in any aspect, what you get when you have people, you get confusion. Not everybody's a bright star. And people get stuck into, and we all do this. We all get, we all get attracted to the things that we do pretty good or, or that we want to do the most. And unfortunately, that's not the, the crux of how CrossFit operates. CrossFit's a constantly varied functional movement at high intensity. High intensity does not mean the same thing for everything. A 5K run is not the same intensity as a 7 by one deadlift or a 7 by one clean, Okay. That is a, a, a one rep max is a very, uh, it's, it's a top end anaerobic phosphagen pathway uh, movement is incredibly demanding on the central nervous system. 5k run could be demanding on the, on the central nervous system if you've never done one, but it's an easier intensity than that is a more aerobic or slow glycolytic type work effort, right? right? This is not some that that is a completely different, you know, dominant energy system. And and so being able to understand how that operates and how to move under that is key. And that was where, you know, this is where I meshed with CrossFit really well. Um and and I still do. I think I mean I, I I'm I'm I still have conversations with Greg from time to time and, and we, it's still, you know, Greg Glassman who created CrossFit and the, he, he, he understands this idea. He doesn't not understand this idea. This is why, you know, they're literally pivoting back towards health because right. it's like, we're like, look, the game, the games aren't CrossFit, but this is a fun thing that people can do and, and, and train for. And it's a great event. Um, and, and these are the fittest people on the, on the planet. I mean, ch the challenge is out there. Anybody can participate, but that's not actually what CrossFit is. Right. And so CrossFit is more or less a constantly varied functional movement, high intensity. And where we fit into that was we were developing high level skill of swim, bike, run or row. And now even, you know, you're looking at tactical, but we're developing skill through that where we're, we're doing a lot of skill development and then we're also adding intensity to that, but it's a varying intensity. So one day you might be doing some short, hard efforts. The next day, in two days, you might be doing some longer duration efforts, which are working on more of that kind of lactate or anaerobic side of things. And then another day you're, you know, you're doing strictly some longer aerobic work mm -hmm. to push those things. That combined with the program itself of the strength and conditioning aspect or the GPP aspect molded results we had never seen before. Right. So let's talk about most endurance 
program. So if you're going to mm-hmm. do a triathlon or train for a marathon and you go to any traditional coach, they're basically the, the base of the program is going to be, Hey, we're going to spend some time building your aerobic base. And that, so, and then you just spend all this time in your zone two heart rate and miles and miles and miles. And where you deviate, right, is is to get away from those junk miles and to have less of the repetitive stress on the body. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, because what you're going to see with time spent in something, the more time you spend in something, the, the more damage or the more work or the more, you know, you're actually doing that you're going to need recovery from. So if I were to do, let's just say, a, a one hour run, right? That is going to require more recovery time for an individual than actually going and doing a one hour CrossFit class. If Got done it. correctly, cause you're going to warm up, you're going to do some mobility, you're going to do some dynamic work. You're going to do the actual workout, which, which will most likely be less than 20 minutes. Okay. Then you're going to cool down versus a a straight effort of yeah and i get it oh yeah we need to get your heart rate up you need to get used to using your heart rate at 140 well i just put your heart rate up to 190 and i brought it back down to 160 and we hovered at 150 for most of the workout and then we were down in the 120s and 130s and basically it averaged out to about the same thing except you're going to recover quicker so so i can hear people saying but 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 we have to do these miles do you I mean, right. I mean, <laughs> do you? I don't, I don't know. Like you say no. So why, how do you not like, what is the bot? What are the well, physiological changes that yes. say no? So what happened the first time you ran 10 kilometers? You, what was it? You were out of breath or was it you were sore as hell? Sore as hell. And you got it. to this day. Mm. <laughs> Okay. So this is another, so this is, so this is not an aerobic training issue. This is a, this is a tissue. This is a strength and conditioning or even a tissue issue. Your tissue's not holding up. A tissue issue. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Ba- basically like you're breaking your body down. Mm-hmm. It's, it's eccentric loading. Okay. You got two ways to do You can go out and you can run miles and put in the time and, and require more recovery, or you can actually do some legitimate strength and conditioning to complement what you're doing, work on the skill of actual running, putting in some high quality work that you're actually running in a good position versus going out and just logging miles. And more than likely what we were seeing was poor positions. People just end up molding to their own mobility and restrictions. And you like, unless you know how to change mechanically or to how to run well mechanically, you're just not going to do it. You're going to need some form of skill training. And based on what I was seeing and what I experienced prior to what we developed, there was really none of that to speak of. Most of the work we were doing with a running workout was pretty much skill development work. you know, some sort of high intensity work because it's hard to, you know, be that coordinated uh, with specific drills at specific, you know, doing at specific speeds, right? Or holding specific cadences at specific speeds. And these were all developed in order to get you to mold to better technique, which ends up allowing you to hold up better, right? So better posture, is that a good thing or a bad thing, right? Yeah, That's a yeah, simple, yeah. yeah, right. And And so... When we start to use exercises that start to complement a runner, a cyclist, or a swimmer, we end up having them hold up better. We build stronger tissue. You're not going to build a big buff CrossFit, you know, look CrossFit Games looking endurance athlete. Some people put on muscle easier than others, but the fact of the matter is, is it, it, it's it's almost physiologically imp- impossible if you're putting in more aerobic time than you are actually lifting or, or, or hypertrophy time, you're, you're not go. your body gets rid of what it can't, it, it, you know, it, it needs to, mm-hmm. it's just not like, sure. You might put on a couple or, you know, a few pounds here and there in muscle, but is that 
a, a better, is that better or worse for you? And anybody who says that's worse for you does not understand longevity, right? Oh, so long, yeah, sustainability, yeah, right? Exactly. You know, you, being weak and and with less muscle tissue when you're older is one of the key things to somebody somebody's death. Like yeah. there's there's really three key things that are that are important. That your VO2 max never drop below 22. Okay. That your leg strength allow you to get up off of a couch, right? And that your grip strength stays strong. Those three variables are literally the, are, are the most important variables in somebody's longevity of life. Wow. I've never heard that. Yeah. Dr. Andy Galpin brings that up, uh, who's my co-author on Unplugged okay. uh, book, but he, he talks about that all the time. And you wouldn't even think, like when, once you say it, I'm like, well, yeah, you need to be able to get off the couch and open a yeah. jar. I mean, yes. that's like living by yourself 101 at age 90. But how many people do we know well into their 70s who can't do those things? You got it. Yeah. Yep. Wow. But then you see, then you see these hundred-year-old or not, you know, ninety-plus-year-old people who are moving around just fine, moving yeah. around. I can't tell you how many of them pass me on a race course. You know, there well, they go with 88 on their calf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. great there. Good yeah. job. <laughs> um, okay. But in, in traditional training, there's this rule of specificity com mm -hmm. concept that the way to get better at one thing is to do that one thing over and over and over. Mm -hmm. um, how does doing, I mean, you've kind of touched on this, but how doing a bunch of different things allows you to get better at one thing like well you're you're still repeating thing you're still repeating a sport but you're just not doing it as frequently when you're when you're still banged up right and and that's kind of the idea and and try not to take that lightly because when you first start you know playing around with our program if you've never done any strength and conditioning you've got to be well aware that you got to go easier than normal um, you know, it, because you, you will be sore, things will get difficult. It's not the easy road. Uh, you know, we try to explain this to people as much as we could. This is not a hack. Um, you know, I mean, I've been, I've been featured in three of Tim Ferriss's books, one of which was, you know, the, the four hour body, which we talked about all of this programming and being able to do ultra marathons on very low mileage of which I did. Um, but that is not the, what we're talking about is not the easy road. It's not a hack. It's literally introducing you to the kind of martial arts side of running, biking, and swimming. Um, yeah, I have a quote from your book. Hold on. I've got to find it. Cause it's, it was, I underlined it and, um, yeah, for a low volume program to be effective. However, it can't be easy. That's right. Although less time is required, the time will be spent doing challenging, exhausting work. That that's the key, right? Yes. Well, yeah, yeah, you're actually doing real work, and that's the problem is most of us don't want to do real work. <laughs> like I also love a part in the book where you say that people that have gone through your program report that their pain tolerance goes through the roof on race day, that they're able to just sustain so much more pain. <laughs> well, I mean, quite Yes, but I think the biggest the biggest thing that we see is the is the adaptability or the recoverability of somebody, especially post race. Mm -hmm. They just aren't crippled like they used to be, and yeah. they're returning back to a normal life sooner. If that's not, I, I I mean, if that's not an indicator of of what we're you know of something positive for people, then I don't know what is. I mean, I, I remember vividly being, you know, not being able to walk around, walking like Frankenstein after my Ironman, after the first few uh, ultra marathons I did, um, you know, and then, you know, it was like, oh, we figured some things out here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I told you offline before we started, I did the half Ironman in Augusta just a few weeks ago, and um, I had not done your complete program, but I've been doing CrossFit been doing small mileage and I, I can't wait to see what, you know, what I could do. But I noticed a bunch of things with getting just functionally stronger. Um, number one, I, I wasn't really doing any swimming. However, my swim was the exact same time as when I was putting in a ton of meters. Um, as I was swimming, I felt very balanced. I was not veering to the right. I have always like swam to the right. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I looked up and I was on, I was going straight for the first time in my life. And I also felt like that swim was so easy and I was not, I was not putting out effort. And that was now it kind of went downhill from there. Cause I haven't been training properly at all <laughs> for that race. However, um, the next day I was fine. And I've, and, and so that part that you're talking about feeling recovered, it was a totally different ball game, even though I have been training completely different. I, I mm. mean, I felt the best I ever had. Yeah. My time was, you know, 40 minutes slower. So what, you know, I'm, I'm back at CrossFit this week and it was 10 days ago, you know? Um, so yeah, I, it was pretty remarkable. Well, that's great. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think that when people really start to, I mean, we've, I've worked with a couple professional triathletes. Um, you know, there, there's a guy who's followed our stuff for years. Who's, who's literally, I think he's 40 and he's still, you know, he still kills it. Um, but it, it's not like that. That's a different ball game. You know, once w- when you've achieved professional level in something, you've showed adaptability through things over time that allows you to actually put in volume because you're actually rebounding from that volume. And if you're not actually getting faster or, or getting better as you put in more mileage and more time, then there's no real reason to be continuing in that fashion. And, and this just, you know, kind of goes back to the whole idea of, well, what's a world-class marathoner? You know, where, where does his program start? You know, so take a look at somebody like Haley Gabri Selassie, right? Who is arguably one of the greatest, you know, endurance athletes of our time. And he not only broke the world record at the marathon uh, when he did, uh, he no longer holds that record, but he's also retired. Um, but he held the half marathon world record prior to that. He held the 10 K world record prior to that. And I believe he held the five K world record prior to that. So look at the time, look at how that worked. He got really fast at the five K. Then he got really fast, the 10 K then he got really fast at at half Ironmans or or at, at half marathons. Right. Then he stepped it up to marathons. The general population kind of goes in reverse. We see something gnarly and we're like, yes, let's go. I'm going to go do that. <laughs> right. For sure. Yep. I and mean, so I had no business doing any of my long distance. I probably still don't. I should. Well, it's like, not, literally- <laughs> it's not no business, but we like, look, it's not a no business thing. It's like, Hey, these things are out there. Their challenges are out there. I think we just get lost in, in, in the idea of, and this is something my wife and I talk about a lot is, you know, athletes and people get caught in goals a lot and they think that goals are really the important part. And there's a very, you know, there's something that can go very wrong in that thinking because it, it, it doesn't allow for people when we like, look, I go do an Ironman. Okay. Now what? Right. So go like Bruce Lee has a great quote that, that that he put out all goals apart from the means are illusions. Becoming is a denial of being you live. So, so there's, it's literally denying the process of what it is you're actually doing and just going out and slogging something out to accomplish something versus like, no, maybe I should look at the process of this and how it works. Right. That's why the martial arts are so incredible. And, and they, and they, and they teach something like, yeah, oh, well, we're, we're talking about my, you know, repeating mileage or repeating time on feet over and over and over again. So that, you know, you're taking that concept of like, oh, a, a thousand, you know, one kick done a thousand times. That's not one kick done a thousand times that that's going and beating oneself up, you know, to the point of you're no longer taking the same step anymore. If you're not taking the same step, meaning you're starting to deteriorate, you're starting to reinforce bad habits. Right. And if you're reinforcing bad habits, the problem with a long, slow distance program is, is you've put reinforced so many bad habits that at 50 or 60, your knee's now going to be replaced. Exactly. And I think that's what I mean by I had no business because obviously the long, slow distance, it produces a training effect. You will build your endurance, but 100%. You can't, but the question is, can you do it and be injury free and not have these bad habits and not develop them? And so I was an adult onset runner. I didn't really run until, you know, 2010, never did my whole life. 
Um, and then so to be a crappy runner coming out of the gate, because I didn't know how, um, mm. and then to slog all the way to Ironman without really fixing that and not building the foundational strength. That's what I mean by no business. You know, the, the goal mm-hmm. was there, but I should have just like hung out at the 5k for a little bit. Well, <laughs> I mean, this out. is, this is your, this is your story and you, yeah. you do yeah. you, you know, I'm not telling I don't want people to think, you know, like I, I used to run around kind of, you know, being like, yeah, probably you don't have any business doing that. Right. But that's not the truth. That's not, that's isn't my, that's not my life. And for me, it was like, I mean, I didn't exactly do that, but I did get pretty, pretty fast. And then, you know, I actually got pretty quick for an adult starting to run very early or very very late in the game Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and started using that speed to actually allow me to go longer, right? Versus I'm just gonna go long and go long and then like what, what we inevitably see with that is people who are just busted up in 10 years. Right. Really busted up. I mean, you're not telling, I'm not telling, and you're not telling anyone that this is what you should do. It's just no. an alternative. No. And, and look, yeah. you can get hurt doing, doing things, <laughs> doing, doing things our way if you're not paying attention, right? If you're me, you can get hurt walking to the car. Yes. Well, I, I mean, I... <laughs> I do the same thing sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that I liked in the book, you said instead of peaking like or taking an athlete to 100% and peaking and having them race one or two events a year, the whole idea behind your program is really keeping the athlete around, was it 90 or 95% of working potential at all times so they can race healthy and, and have the sustainability all year. Correct. Yeah. Correct. This and this isn't a new concept. This is a concept somebody like Louis Simmons with Westside Barbells has been saying for probably twenty or thirty years. You know, they, they he keeps his lifters within ninety percent year round, um, and, and he's doing it by by vir, by virtue of concepts that are very similar to CrossFit. He uses a conjugate method which basically is the same concept with weight training as CrossFit. Mm -hmm. It's varying up the exercises, training it differently, but but using some maximal efforts and some speed efforts and then using conditioning in between those things in order to keep the athlete primed and ready to go. But make no mistake, when we lift maximally, you know, (laughs) that's the hard day. Yeah. How long does it take to recover from like max lift day? I, I mean, if, if we're truly doing, I mean, for like, look, if you're a, a, a professional power lifter or high level power lifter, that's a few days. Yeah. If you're a triathlete or an endurance athlete, that's probably a day, mm-hmm. right? You're not lifting enough load to actually really necessitate the stress that's actually kicking, you know, when you're lifting 800 pounds off the ground, comparatively speaking to 200, right? So th- there, there's a variance in there. Yeah. And, and understanding that is critical. You know, stress is stress, ultimately. And so training yourself to handle the load of 800 pounds is like, you know, running a marathon at like, you know, a thousand pound back squat is like, basically, essentially, and, you know, to some degree, like running the almost two hour marathon, right? Mm-hmm. That's, I don't have that physiological, I, I haven't spent, I never spent the time to do that. That That's, that's a career, like to do something like that. You've got to be so fast early on and continue on that process, you know, for, for a decade plus, you know, maybe even 20 years to do something like that. So your, your book, Unbreakable Runner has training plans anywhere from the 5k to the ultra marathon. Um, can you give us like a high level summary of like what a marathon training plan or a marathon plan would look like under, under your coaching. Uh, sure. I mean, you're probably looking at, uh, four days a week minimum of strength and conditioning. Um, and then you're looking at three days a week of running and the strength and conditioning is there to complement your, issues, the things that are going on with you, um, right. And, and to kind of clean those things up, but also complement the running, right? So 
development of, you know, the hamstrings and the calves and, you know, under the hips continuing to work so that they're not just shutting down when I'm running, um, you know, being stable, being in a better position. Uh, my shoulder range of motion is just as important as my hip range of motion. This is something where a runner wouldn't typically think about, but if I've got a, if I've got a shoulder that's immobile, that, that inevitably screws up the, you know, concentric contraction that's occurring across my body as I land. Um, there's, there's big repercussions for things like that. Um, so, so the, strength and conditioning program is set in there. You're probably going to lift. I, I would say you're probably lifting heavy once or twice a week. Um, but you're going to be spending a lot of your running time doing drills and skill work, complimenting, getting you ready for, um, a, a marathon in essence. Um, and this progresses kind of in a linear fashion where, you would see something like, you know, 20 or 30 minutes of skill development work followed by, you know, six to eight 200 meter repeats. And you're, you should be holding those repeats on a specific time, on a specific cadence. So you're maintaining that skill that we're actually looking to reinforce. Um, and that would progress, a workout like that would progress into something like probably eight, four hundreds, you know, down the road. Um, and then you've got more of your middle work distance work where you're looking at eight hundreds to one mile repeats, um, with skill development work in front of that. Um, and that would be very similar in that fashion, um, progressing from eight hundreds or the kind of three minute mark up to, you know, you're looking at six, seven, eight minutes sometimes with some people, um, and then you're looking at some longer duration, you know, a longer duration run where you're looking at progressing something from five kilometers all the way up to maybe about a half marathon, usually about a half marathon. Um, and that's about it. Um, but, but always never, it, it's kind of fluctuating to where we may do a 10 mile run one week, but then you come back and you do a 5k the next week, but you're running that 5k at you know, an all out pace, like how mm -hmm. fast can you run that? And that then comes back to a 10 mile run the next week, which is about 80% effort. And so you're seeing a drop in a major drop in intensity in that 10 K right. But you've developed speed on the back end the week before. And so we're kind of kicking back into, you know, settle the body back in and, and not beat it up as much. And, and, and there, there's a lot of progressions in there, but, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the gist of what you would kind of see with what we are doing. So you probably, what would be the longest run? I mean, assuming everyone's doing, the person is doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, with the strength training and the drills, what would typically be your highest and highest longest run? T uh, typically you're looking at for a marathon, a yeah. half marathon. Okay. Typically some people so start to freak out a little too much. So we let them go out and <laughs> run 18, 20 miles and ask them how they felt afterwards and they feel fine. And they're like, Oh, I guess I can do this. So, so, um, would that same principle apply for ultra? I mean, is it basically 50% less? Mileage? Yeah, no, 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 no. Okay. I, there's no real need to be running really anything outside Look, past 10 kilometers, really, of running, like, you're not seeing a whole lot of VO2 change. So there's no real necessity in being out there other than getting the tissue prepared. So if we're actually getting tissue prepared and doing things, um, like, the longest, some of the longest stuff we see with training-wise with people is really in the half marathon distance or multiple 5Ks repeated. So something like 4 by 5K, right? So you'd run four 5Ks um, with like five to 10 minutes rest between them, but you'd be holding on them on a specific pace. Um, and these sort of things will have you more or less prepared for an ultra marathon. You also got to look at ultra marathoning is if I'm signing up, go do 100 miles, I probably needed to qualify for that. So you're going to have to do a 50 miler to qualify, right? And then it, you probably did a 50K before. So, so you've got some racing in there. And yeah. so racing becomes kind of the experience. 
of this thing and understanding your body and how you can transition. So that, that plays a part in it. But I mean, the longest runs I did going into, uh, the, the 200 milers I did was half marathon. If you're at a half marathon distance, say you've done a half marathon and you, you did reasonably well and you recovered well, um, what kind of time frame are you looking at to kind of make the adaptations to, to do a marathon with this training? Or is that you, just dependent on who you are? I mean, that just depends on what you want to do. I mean, I, I think that comes into what you want to do as a person. Okay. Um, if you've run a half marathon, there's no reason why you can't run a marathon. Mm-hmm. You just need to be well aware that, you know, the training is probably going to be a little more intense or a little bit more. Uh, there's going to be a little bit more of it. Um, you know, and, and, and there are very, there are differences between, you know, looking at a half marathon versus a marathon versus, you know, the a marathon training program does not differentiate too much from an ultra marathon training program. Okay. What about the mental shift? I mean, if you're someone who's done a lot of low, long, slow distance running, um, to learn to suffer and to push yourself to the higher intensity, what, what kind of skills do you kind of help impart? On your athletes for that because it is a big difference it's a big difference mm-hmm. um I, well i, I <laughs> <laughs> or are you just i this, this, <laughs> this is the, the part that plays no no i you know i mean this is where when you have people who are really mentally challenged by the idea they go out and you have them run long um you know and i don't have a problem with that uh I, I had athletes do that all the time um, that would be freaking out because they're so used to going long and they hadn't gone long. And so we, we go and let them do, you know, go do a long run and they come back and they're like, Oh, I feel better. Okay. I, I feel like I can do this. Um, you know, that, that, that's just part of the, you know, the kind of the, the, the illusion or the, or the fairy tale that we like to tell ourselves about things. And so, and, and, it's because people bought into this. I've just got to go spend time on my feet. <laughs> I've just, just got to go though? out there. And... <laughs> what about your feet? My feet mm. hurt when I don't. Do you just go suffer through the blisters? <laughs> like, how do you well, get through that part of the long run? I don't get blisters. Um, you know, and, and blisters are 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 quick. <laughs> a quick a quick understanding of blisters are your shoes don't actually fit. Or you're rubbing your toes, or you're making mechanical errors, or all of the above. Yeah, or all of the above. <laughs> and so, like, I ran in pretty low-profile shoes, and I'm barefoot most of the day. Um, it just is what it is. And and you can choose to be in a padded shoe and make that much worse on yourself. And and here's that illusionary. Here's that illusion again. If I wear shoes, I'm protecting my feet and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm walking around, I'm going to be fine because, you know, then I can wear padded shoes in a race. Well, the irony of that is that the more padding you have on your foot, the harder you're going to slam your foot into the ground. Interesting. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Cause you're not, yeah. Cause if, if you don't have a lot of padding, you're not going to land as hard. I picked up on this at my first ultra marathon race where there was uh, some, some Indian guys who were running legit Indians from like Mexico who were, who were running in the race in sandals. And there was guys, there was a guy by the name of barefoot Ted who was in, uh, he was basically barefoot most of the time. And he's, I still know him today. And he literally, they were the quietest people and they were walking around normal and everybody else was crippled walking around after the race. Hmm. Yeah. So how do you learn to transition from the super padded shoe and the bad mechanics. I mean, what are like three, let's say three drills or three things that you start with um, get a, for someone like me? Yeah. Get out of your shoes more often. Start um, stretching your feet more or, or mobilizing your feet more. Um, and I would get a pair of low profile shoes that you can transition in and out of. Meaning if I go do, you know, I'm, I'm gonna like start wearing those shoes to walk around in, um, to get used to, then start to do some of your running in them, then start to do the majority of your running in them and then go back to your other shoes. Right. And, and so make these transitions like that. But 
you've got to, you know, I mean, this is in part why utilizing a program like CrossFit is actually kind of, you know, important or actually doing drill work barefoot, um, you know, starting to run after your workouts, like go are, you know, a lot of the stuff we'll, we'll have athletes do is go run on the grass barefoot after they train. Right. Um, this starts to develop that, that whole sensory, you've got hundreds of thousands of sensors in the bottoms of your feet that you're not even using when you've got shoes on. Right. And so when we start to use those things, we start to make corrections and that just, it's just a feedback system. Plus you, you know, you're grounding yourself like to the, to, to the planet to a large degree, which right. is a very important thing actually. Um, and, and, you know, being in shoes all the time is kind of a, has presented a problem, especially shoes that have artificial lifts in them where they're not zeroed out, like meaning just flat all the way across. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like women's high heel shoes are probably the worst things that were ever invented. Um, it, it just, it destroys women's ankles. Yeah, I would believe it. I, I practiced law for 13 years and yeah. I haven't worn heels since. And yeah. My, my body's much happier. Well, it's, it's like wearing, too. yeah, it's also like, it's, it's like wearing Olympic weightlifting shoes around all day. You know, um, <laughs> like I see power lifters, we see power, we, we saw this switch about five or six years ago where power lifters started get it, grasping the idea of squatting in Olympic weightlifting shoes. And then we started seeing a lot of issues that were occurring as a result of that because you're in a heel lift and it makes it easier and you don't have to use your hips as much, right? Because you can get down deeper because dorsiflexion is taken. It's just a mechanical advantage thing, right? And all of a sudden when you're in normal shoes, you can't move as well now. Yeah. That's interesting. That's yeah. interesting. So like, would you, so you recommend squatting in like a normal shoe if oh, you're doing. I, I squat, I lift barefoot. Yeah. And that's hard for me. That's hard for me. Like coming from Olympic weightlifting to mm-hmm. even consider doing like, I would not, flat. I would not, I would not <laughs> Olympic weightlift with that. I would Olympic weightlift in Olympic weightlifting shoes. I think okay. they're specifically, yes, Olympic weightlifting, totally different. Squatting, deadlifting, uh, pressing. Uh, if you're doing those things, you don't need shoes. You, okay. you literally legitimately do not need shoes on. It freaks me out to not be in shoes because of just like the danger, danger. I'm like, oh, the bar, the black toe. But I guess if you just don't drop I mean, the bar on your feet. What if... <laughs> You had a shoe on and the bar dropped on it. Yeah, it's true. It's really not that much more protection. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> I think the shoe the shoe debate's so interesting because like I've I've been wearing the cross trainers for the for the last year and I haven't been doing that much running. And then I go to do this race last weekend and I put on my old stability running shoes. And they're not like too stable, but they're definitely a stability shoe. And I was out of sorts. Because I have not been wearing those crazy shoes. And so mm-hmm. I think I can make the transition now because I've I've given myself time without even realizing it. Yeah. That's yeah. that's making some changes. Adaptation. Not even knowing yeah. I was doing it. So let's talk yeah. about um I've I've been following you on Instagram for a while and you do a lot with breath work. Yes. So let's talk about that. Yes. Breathing. Let's I suck at breathing too, Brian. So Well <laughs> mo- mo- most athletes do. Most, most endurance athletes do, um, you know, most athletes in general do, um, we just think it's just this thing that we do. And I did, and, um, was kind of proven wrong when I started looking at this, uh, in the way that, you know, like maybe the, well, not maybe the free diving community looked at it, their yoga community looked at it, um, you know, you're looking, you, uh, there's many different methods out there. There's many different things out there. There's traditions that are thousands of years old, and we've really just not a, paid a whole lot of attention to this. And because we, you know, something was a part of some hippy-dippy esoteric, um, you know, program that wasn't really that attractive to us, or we just felt like this was just our stretching class, Right. And there's a reason why breath is attached to a practice like yoga. And, you know, there's, there are things you can take from that 
that we have learned that we're now learned, we've learned to extrapolate the principles of these things and start to integrate them into the work we're doing within our own training paradigm. And by that, I mean like introducing something like, well, for the next month, you're only going to nasal breathe when you're running. And even if you're doing 200 or 400 meter repeats or 800 meter repeats, you're just nasal breathing. And that changes somebody's, uh, <laughs> that'll change somebody's world pretty quickly. I guess so. Yeah. And, and it limits your ability to act, to do a number of things. And one of the things that we, we have to understand is that the nose was designed with the respiratory system in mind and the mouth was designed with our communication and our digestive system. And to sit there and run or ride my bike and just open my mouth and breathe, what I'm doing is I'm just offloading a lot of CO2. I'm not taking in any more oxygen than, I'm, than I would in any other situation. But what I am doing is I'm offloading CO2. And when I offload CO2, there's a specific relationship that CO2 has with O2. And it makes oxygen actually bioavailable. And so carbon dioxide levels have to be adequate enough in the bloodstream in order for us to utilize the oxygen effectively. So oxygen binds to red blood cells. Endurance athletes know red blood cells. The more you've got, the more oxygen carrying power you have. But you also need a, this protein called hemoglobin, which makes the red blood cell like a magnet for oxygen but unfortunately that oxygen cannot be kicked off unless there's enough acid in the blood or co2 to coax it off or get it off and so when i just breathe with my mouth open or breathe the way i want to i'm not actually as aerobically or oxygen efficient as i could be and this is why you see things in like yoga where they nasal breathe into specific positions. They'll inhale into a position, they'll exhale into the next position, and they're breathing through their nose mainly, right? Mm -hmm. So Patrick McEwen did an incredible job of bringing the Buteyko method, which is a Russian method of breathing, to the masses. Um, and, and the Buteyko method was brought into ru the Russian medical system to eliminate asthma. And it was the first line of defense for eliminating asthma. And it's and it did a profound job at that. I, I have, without even trying, helped hundreds of people with asthma because we've got them to transition over to nasal breathing. And what we've found is that people who have low CO2 tolerance levels are very are not very good at utilizing oxygen. And so we train them to develop a higher level of CO2 tolerance in the lungs, which inevitably allows them to slow down the respiration rate. So the easy play with that is we get people to start nasal breathing. Um, the more complex play with that is there's specific speeds at which you can use your breathing pattern in order to gear up or gear down. And then this could transition even into mouth breathing, where mouth breathing becomes a necessity. But the three-phase process with breathing and respiration is, is that it is a mechanical advantage, it is a physiological advantage, and it is a mental or state advantage. And when I say that, it mean, I mean that when we actually alter the breathing, it affects mechanics, physiology, and state. I find myself breathing differently just talking to you about breathing. <laughs> <laughs> I bet everyone that's listening later is going to be like, I know. I was like, oh, gosh, I'm a mouth breather. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, and this is why when you do a podcast or you talk for a while, you're going you're gonna to feel a little energy drop is because you're actually blowing off CO2. So you're actually stressing yourself out more. You're more sympathetic dominant when you actually open your mouth and if i'm more sympathetic dominant it's harder for me to transition back into parasympathetic right so if i'm actually training my athletes to utilize nasal breathing in the first month of their training i'm actually conditioning them to be much more aerobically efficient and we see massive changes from people who didn't know that had no idea that, of, of how they were breathing or what they were doing 
And that, that alone changes an athlete's career or a person's life um, because they actually, and, and, and how, how important is this? Well, are your mitochondria important? And yes. m- yeah, they are. <laughs> I need and, those. and, and, and yet I, you know, you could have an athlete who, you know, trains really hard every day, but is a mouth breather and they're not using that mitochondria to a very high level because they're so sympathetic dominant. They're, they're actually burning through more of their sugar instead of their fat, or they're not utilizing oxygen as well. And so you don't need to go work out hard in order to do that. You can just open your mouth and offload a whole bunch of CO2. Yeah. And you'll do that. So I, I had a car accident a couple of years ago and had been just going to this ART practitioner for, for years, like trying to get my neck and back to just quit hurting. It hurt all the time, no matter what I did. And he finally just said, um, we're going to do a session with breathing. And I got so mad because I thought, you know, you're not, <laughs> you're not fixing me. Nothing is working. And we went through some, I was just breathing through my mouth. I I was breathing so inefficiently. Mm. And over the last year, year and a half, my neck and my back have stopped hurting. I mean, they hurt from training, but the major pain I was having is is gone. And I'm like, well, (laughs) really? Breathing? I mean, I guess, you know, yogis have known this forever. But yeah, I totally, totally believe it. Yeah. Yeah. BKS Iyengar, the quote that he basically said was the brain is or the mind is the king of the senses and the breath is the king of the mind. Mm -hmm. And you control that breath. You control that breath. You actually can control what's going on in the body's reaction to things. It's amazing. Yeah. So how can people learn about power, speed, endurance and kind of what you guys do? Yeah, uh, I, I, we, we actually do a lot. Um, it's not just like endurance training. It's actually full gamut training um, with, you know, like, hey, if you're a runner, like it still involves breath work. There's breath work that, that go- comes with that, how to breathe, what, what, what's working with that. Um, there's mobility work. Um, you know, there's uh, there's obviously the strength and conditioning aspect or the movement side of things. We we've encompassed everything basically that, that kind of I've been going over here, um, into one platform and the, we've just launched our app, which houses all this information where you just, you have your training in your hand, you have the breathing stuff in your hand. So we've got a breathing timer in there that you can input your breathing protocols into whether you're going to be using them when you're working. So let's just say I have you doing a, Um, we might have somebody do a three second inhale, three second exhale, and they're going to work. They're going to, they're going to run or they're going to ride their bike as hard as they can while still doing that. Right. So you've, you can have that running at the same time or before a workout or after workout, you want to down regulate or get more parasympathetic or recover quicker. You input that stuff into the breathing side of things and you go through that. Um, you know, the trainings there, all of the information's there. We have a ton of information, uh, on the website that's actually for free um, and, and you know, just gives an outline and gives an overview, including research, resources, et cetera, on everything that we do. And what's the web? What's the website? PowerSpeedEndurance.com? Yes, ma'am. Okay, cool. One more question, Brian. Yeah. Um, this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, meaning mm-hmm. we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we do with those 24 hours that leads to our greater health, happiness, and success. So what is something that you do on a daily basis that makes your life better? Uh, I actually have a formal breathing and meditation practice. Okay. Yeah. That I, I mean, look, A, I move. Um, I, I, this is kind of a compound answer. <laughs> I, I, I do breath work. I meditate with inside that structure or outside of that. I actually do yoga basically daily and I move in another form of whether I'm on my bike, I'm running or I'm training in the gym. These are the things I do. This is what I do in in order to feel my best. And I may even get in my sauna or my cold tank. Right. And those are all things that I implement in my life because they all have a very, very positive impact on my life. 
So how long is what I said one question I lied mm -hmm. one more. Um, yeah, <laughs> how long, you know, a, a lot of times with the breath work and yoga, people say I don't have time, which BS to that. But yeah, how long do you meditate and, and, and do yoga? And, and it all depends. Yoga? It all depends. Yeah. Uh, my, my breath work and meditation is sometimes just less than 10 minutes. Okay. Other times it can be upwards of 30 minutes. Okay. So you can, you can do it in any time you have. Whatever you Anytime got. Anytime you make. Bre you make. Breathing is actually a form of meditation. Yeah. So just doing some breathing for five to 10 minutes will actually not, that it'll literally alter your physiology. Well, thank you, Brian. This was wonderful. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on.